This is the audiobook podcast of Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI. It is narrated using voice technology from Microsoft Labs that has been trained on my voice. We are working on the frontier of things, and that is plainly audible. Some parts feel stunningly indistinguishable from my own reading to even me. Others don't sound very human at all. They feel way off in tone of voice, timing, cadence, etc. My philosophy has always been to launch early, even if you're truly embarrassed by your first product, and learn rather than wait until things are perfect. I hope you enjoy, and I look forward to your feedback. Chapter 10, Homotechny. Not long ago, I wrote an essay about how technology actually makes us more human. The Atlantic published an excerpt in January of this year, but I also wanted to have a conversation with GPT-4 about the larger essay. This chapter is that discussion in May 1923, the cover image of Science and Invention magazine depicted what it described as the automobile of 1973, designed for suburbanites traveling into congested cities for work and shopping. The automobile of 1973 is in fact a streamlined seven-passenger helicopter automobile, or as author Hugo Grensback shortens it, a helicar with its red metal hull and transparent roof and side panels. The cylindrical helicar looks like a giant Tylenol capsule, offering frustrated commuters a time-saving, hassle-free way to bypass urban traffic jams. It lifts off via a retractable propeller, a sleek push-button panel controls its operation. When it's not in flight, stabilizing gyroscopes allow it to roll down streets on just two wheels. According to Gernsback, who would go on to found the world's first science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories, the helicar would make mechanized travel even more liberating and autonomous than the standard automobile. You will go straight up in the air and follow the air traffic lines, then descend at any place you wish, he exclaimed, GPT-4, how does this anecdote relate to the idea that technological advances make us more human? What does it mean to use technology to be more human in terms of amplifying the defining characteristics of humanity? This anecdote could relate to the idea that technological advances make us more human in a few ways. For one, the helicar that Jernsback envisioned would allow people to move more freely and with less frustration. This would give people more control over their lives and allow them to spend less time stuck in traffic and more time engaged in meaningful activities. In this way, technology could be seen as amplifying our human desire for freedom and autonomy. Additionally, Jernsback's enthusiasm and imagination in describing the helicar speaks to the human drive to create and innovate. Human beings are natural problem solvers and technology often becomes the vehicle through which we address challenges and make improvements to our lives. In this sense, technological advances can be seen as an expression of our human ingenuity and creativity. Nearly 50 years after Gernsback, imagine that, that helicars have become a standard feature of America's cities. Companies like Joby Aviation are finally on the verge of making that vision a reality. What's even more notable about Gernsback's dream of air taxis is not the ambition of his timeable, but rather that he dared to dream it in the first place. 
there was, after all, ample reason for despair in 1923 about the present and the future and technology's role in both only a few years prior. 14 rapidly industrializing countries had engaged in what was then called the Great War with armored tanks, warplanes, poison gas, automatic weapons, and powerful telecommunications equipment to connect them all. The combatants inflicted death on a previously impossible scale. 23 million soldiers and civilians had been killed. All that was just a prelude to an even deadlier event. In 1918 to 19, the Spanish flu was spread initially via returning soldiers and then by travelers on railways and passenger ships. In just two years, it claimed between 20 to 50 million lives. For the people of the 1920s, it might have seemed perfectly reasonable to curse the technologies that led to these horrors and to take a reactionary stance against innovation. Instead, our 1920s forebears did the opposite, especially in the United States. The U.S. nearly quadrupled electricity production in the 20s, powering new levels of progress and prosperity. Networks of all kinds were ascendant. These included electric grids, telephone systems, interconnected radio stations that enabled coast-to-coast -coast broadcasting, movie theater chains, and perhaps most consequentially roads to make the burgeoning auto industry more useful. How do you think we reconcile such massive negative outcomes with the idea that these technologies ultimately ended up being net positive for humanity? I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. It's important to remember that technology is a tool, and it's up to us as humans to decide how we use it. It's also worth noting that people in the 1920s weren't universally optimistic about the future. I'm sure there were plenty of people who were skeptical and worried about the direction things were heading. But the fact that so many people were able to channel their energies into creating a better future, despite the setbacks, is something I think we can learn from today. GPD-4 is right that people in the 1920s were not universally optimistic about the future or about technology. In 1920, Czechoslovakian writer Karol Čopek introduced the word robot and the idea of robot rebellion in his play R.U.R., which depicts a world in which surf-like entities created to provide cheap labor for humanity become so ubiquitous they take up arms and wipe out the human race. In Metropolis, Fritz Lang's cinematic sci-fi epic, workers toiling underground for the wealthy capitalists living above them use a robot to help win their freedom. But, as historian Peter J. Bowler suggests in his book, A History of the Future, at a time when 65% of America's households already had a telephone and 37% had a car, it was clear that invention was the key to a better life, GPT-4. What do you think? So, despite the carnage of World War I and the Spanish flu, the 1920s ended up being a decade of technological optimism. And while some of that optimism may have been a little over the top, it nonetheless enabled people to imagine a better future and work toward it. Yes, I'd agree with that, despite optimism winning out. I think the concerns about technology were valid, just as they are today. The fears about technology in the 1920s were not without merit, but ultimately, they did not come to pass. For example, the idea of robots taking over the world, as depicted in RUR and Metropolis, never came to pass. It seems that people were generally optimistic about technology in the 1920s, 
and it paid off, as the decade saw major advancements in electricity, transportation, and communication. But there have been other times throughout history when fears about technology were realized, how do we make sense of that while remaining optimistic about future innovations? There definitely have been times when fears about new technologies have been realized in one way or another. For example, during the Industrial Revolution, many workers worried that machines would replace them and take away their livelihoods, and in some cases, they were right. Or, more recently, people have been concerned about the privacy implications of social media and big data, and we've seen numerous cases of data breaches and misuse of personal information. I think it's important to be pragmatic and to consider both the potential benefits and risks of new technologies. We should be open to innovation, but also be cautious and mindful of where it might lead. Just because the fears of the 1920s didn't materialize doesn't mean we should dismiss all concerns outright. Ultimately, I think we need to be proactive and thoughtful when it comes to technology, and not just blindly embrace it or reject it out of fear. Today, many aspects of our lives that we now take for granted would make even Hugo Gernsback himself gasp and wonder. First and foremost is the dramatic change in our own mortality, as Stephen Johnson noted in an April 2021 article in the New York Times Magazine, the average human life has doubled in the last hundred years. Thanks to antibiotics, vaccines, other key scientific innovations, and as Johnson emphasizes, equally important policy choices, advocacy campaigns, and regulatory interventions. The average 21st century person now has an extra life compared to our ancestors just a few generations ago. That is nothing less than amazing. Perhaps the greatest accomplishment in human history and technology was central to it. Along with more time, we have exponentially more ways to spend it using tools that make us far more powerful than the typical denizen of the early 1920s. Always close at hand and connected to massive repositories of global intelligence. Smartphones are a new cyber appendage that billions of people utilize hundreds of times a day to project their voices, extend their vision, enhance their memory, respond more quickly to changing conditions, and make more informed decisions. Whoever you were in, say, 2005, you are, if you regularly use a smartphone now, a dramatically enhanced version of that person. In addition, you can also coordinate and collaborate with billions of other similarly empowered people who are more amplified and efficiently connected versions of their former selves too. I don't necessarily disagree with any of the points you made, but I think it's important to remember that not everyone experiences these benefits equally. For example, while it's true that the average human life has doubled in the past hundred years, there are still parts of the world where life expectancy is much lower, due to poverty, lack of access to healthcare, or other factors. And while smartphones and other technology have certainly made our lives easier in many ways, they can also exacerbate existing inequalities, for example, by making it easier for those who can afford them to access information and opportunities, while those who can't are left further behind. So while I don't disagree that we're living in an incredible time, I think it's important to keep in mind that these benefits aren't universally shared. That's a very important point. Do you think modern emerging technology can help us democratize these benefits or otherwise address long-standing equity issues? 
I think it's definitely possible. For example, telemedicine could help address the lack of access to healthcare in under-resourced areas, and technology that allows for remote work or online learning could create new opportunities for people in rural or impoverished areas. But I also think that it's important to remember that technology is only a tool, it's up to us as a society to make sure that it's used in a way that promotes equity and benefits everyone, rather than just a select few. What are some ways that AI can help democratize these benefits? There are a lot of potential ways that AI could help democratize benefits, but here are a few possibilities. AI can be used to improve the accuracy and efficiency of medical diagnoses, which could help reduce disparities in healthcare access and outcomes. AI-driven tools could help us better personalize education, allowing us to target interventions for students who need extra support and potentially narrowing achievement gaps. AI can be used to help us analyze and understand large and complex data sets, which could help us better address issues like climate change, food insecurity, and poverty. Naturally, this universal upgrade to humanity is not without complications. The same capabilities and services that can help an unbanked farmer in a developing country connect with new customers and sources of capital can also empower ransomware gangs, terrorist organizations, and racist conspiracy mongers. And because we human beings are calibrated to perceive the awful more acutely than the good, we often see further innovation not as a potential solution, aka progress, but as the cause of some or most of our pressing problems. We anticipate even greater problems down the road. From an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense for us to be highly attuned to danger or threat. If you're a caveman and you hear rustling in the bushes, it's more important for you to be worried about a potential predator than to be excited about a potential meal. Being on high alert for the bad things in life can help us survive. Additionally, I think the negative tends to stand out more to us because it's often more unexpected or disruptive. We're used to things going relatively smoothly in our lives, so when something comes along that disrupts that, it's jarring and grabs our attention. Finally, I think there's an element of negativity bias that comes from our culture and media. We're constantly bombarded with bad news and stories of tragedy, which can make it seem like the world is just full of awful things. This can condition us to be hyper-focused on the negative, even when there's plenty of good in the world too. How should we reconcile that negativity bias when confronting revolutionary changes, such as artificial intelligence? Surely optimism isn't enough on its own, since, as you pointed out, fear is a rational response, in some cases. I think it's important to be realistic and pragmatic when it comes to new technologies like artificial intelligence. We should be aware of the potential risks and dangers, but not allow fear or negativity to paralyze us. We need to keep pushing forward, taking smart precautions, and working to harness the benefits of these technologies while minimizing the potential harms. And as individuals, it can be helpful to remind ourselves that there is a lot of good in the world, even if it doesn't always make the headlines. I don't at all mean to discount the major challenges we face or suggest that a more optimistic outlook alone might inoculate us against adversity. There's never a sure or straightforward path to a better future. In fact, it's the magnitude of challenges like climate change, 
pandemics, economic justice, and systemic racism that make a fiercely optimistic mindset so necessary. If we want to make meaningful progress, we have to think boldly and ambitiously about what we can accomplish and strengthen our resolve by recognizing that despite all these very real challenges, humanity has accomplished great things in recent decades. Over the last 30 years, global poverty rates have plummeted. Global child mortality has declined by half over a similar time span. Although there is still much more to do to combat climate change, the combined emissions of six common air pollutants has dropped by 78% in the U.S. since the Clean Air Act of 1970. Decades of progress in developing RNA therapeutics allowed Moderna and Pfizer to develop COVID-19 vaccines so quickly, and we're on the cusp of experiencing even greater progress on multiple fronts. All of which leads to a significant irony when we acclimate to the extraordinary anything less can register as failure. We expect a government as responsive to our exact individual preferences. As our smartphones are, we get frustrated when corporations don't address and correct systemic inequities as efficiently as they deliver packages. Incremental progress starts to feel like a cop-out. Compromise feels like appeasement. Certainly, there is no current shortage of deeply pessimistic books, movies, TV shows, and podcasts about the darkness that awaits us. And maybe we are headed to ruin, maybe endless pandemics and chronic droughts and wildfires are the new normal with civil war, mass unemployment, and just enough medical breakthroughs to keep Donald Trump permanently alive rounding out the picture. But the futures we imagine are inevitably the futures we steer toward. That's why it's so important to dream dreams that go well past salvaging what we can from the status quo. Dreams that peer in the seeming dystopia and envision what could possibly go right. I call myself a techno-humanist. I know the phrase strikes some as an oxymoron, technology, and humanity can sometimes seem like oppositional forces. What's so human about algorithms that turn moral discretion into math equations? What's so human about scale, disinformation, systematically eroding our appetite for consensus and mutual benefit? My view is the opposite. Technological innovation is, and always has been humanity's defining feature. Yes, we're an unusually intelligent species. But what makes us truly unique is how we capitalize on that intelligence by developing technologies that amplify and complement our mental, physical, and social capacities. If we merely lived up to our name, Homo sapiens, and just sat around thinking all day, we'd be much different creatures than we actually are. A more accurate name for us is Homo techni. Homo techni could be translated as the technological human or the human defined by technology. In using this term, you are arguing that our ability to create and use tools, machines, and other technologies is what makes us truly different from other animals. That's correct. Can you give examples of homo techni throughout history? There are countless examples of how humans have used technology to shape our development as a species throughout history. Here are just a few. Early humans created stone tools, which allowed them to hunt more effectively and to process food more efficiently. This allowed for increased food security and the growth of early civilizations. The invention of the wheel allowed for the development of transportation technologies that enabled humans to travel further and faster than ever before. 
The printing press, invented in the 15th century, allowed for the mass production of books and the dissemination of knowledge on an unprecedented scale. The Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries saw the advent of the steam engine, factory production, and other technological innovations. Yes, exactly. But while stone tools allowed humans to hunt and forage more effectively, surely there were drawbacks to the new technology as well. What were some of the drawbacks? That's a tough question. I think that one possible drawback to early tool use could have been the potential for overhunting, which may have disrupted local ecosystems. Another possible drawback is that as humans became increasingly reliant on tools, they may have lost some of their physical abilities. For example, if you're using a spear to hunt instead of chasing down prey with your bare hands, you might not need to be as fast or as strong. But we'll never really know for sure, since we can only speculate about what life was like for prehistoric humans. Also, humans would have been able to use these tools as weapons against each other, right? So even back then, the technology really depended on how the user chose to wield their power. That's a really good point. Yes, one of the potential drawbacks to any technology is that it can be used for destructive purposes. I think that's still true today, when we see things like disinformation campaigns or cyber attacks. So I guess a key question is how we can make sure technology is used to benefit humanity rather than to harm it. So let's really dig in here on early tool use and its relationship to humanity. Are you familiar with Lucy, The Beginnings of Humankind by Donald Johansson? No, I don't think I've heard of that book before. Archaeologist Donald Johansson found Lucy's remains in 1974, about 3.2 million years after she died. According to the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, Lucy was Australopithecus afrensis, not even Homo, let alone sapiens. She lived and died millions of years before the emergence of the computational abilities taken for granted by the most primitive anatomically modern humans. Categorizing Lucy as humankind rewrote our species' self-definition, elevating tool use over brain power. Donald Johansson's book extends a techno-humanist frame backward in time over about 7 million years of bipedal ante. Sapiens tool users before they finally got their big sapiens upgrade in brain power. I think what's most interesting to me is not that our tools have become more sophisticated over many millennia, but that tool use is the very thing that stimulated and supported our cognitive evolution and increased our computing power. It's difficult to say definitively, but the general consensus is that tool use played a significant role in the evolution of our cognitive abilities. Tools allowed for more efficient food gathering, which in turn might have led to changes in diet that promoted brain growth. Additionally, the act of tool making and use itself might have stimulated neurological development, promoting the growth of regions of the brain linked to problem solving, planning, and other complex cognitive tasks. Right, and this wasn't the only time the use of tools was instrumental in the evolution of computational power. What can you tell me about other notable milestones, such as how the Olduvai Gorge could have stimulated cognitive development and impacted how early humans interacted with each other? 
The Oldaway Gorge is a site in Tanzania where researchers have found evidence of some of the earliest stone tool use by hominids, dating back about 2 million years. This find suggests that early hominids were using tools to butcher animals for food, which likely helped them survive and thrive in their environment. The use of these tools might have stimulated cognitive development, as these early humans would have had to manipulate the stones to make them effective tools, and then use them in strategic ways to extract food from their prey. The use of tools would have required the development of fine motor skills, which generally requires complex brain function. Additionally, the act of using tools to obtain food would have necessitated strategic thinking, problem-solving, and planning, all of which are cognitive abilities that would have been beneficial to early humans in a variety of ways. It's difficult to say definitively, but if early humans were using tools to improve their chances of survival, they may have been able to devote more time and resources to social interaction which could have led to the development of more complex communication systems and even the formation of larger social groups. Okay, last one. What can you tell me about how the taming of fire changed early humans' cognitive ability and social interactions? The taming of fire was a huge milestone for early humans. Fire allowed humans to cook food, which changed their diets, as well as stay warm and protect themselves from predators. It also allowed for greater social interaction, as fire could act as a focal point for gatherings. Some researchers have even suggested that fire may have helped early humans develop language, as they could sit around the fire and communicate with one another in a way that wasn't possible before. All of these changes would have impacted early humans' cognitive abilities, as they were now able to think about and engage with the world in new ways. My definition of homotechny assumes that every individual human sapiens or anti-sapiens with or without an AI copilot makes choices. Those choices in the aggregate shape what is experienced by each succeeding generation. To be clear, those choices are fraught ours now, but also since the beginning of humanity, every change had winners and losers. Life got more complicated for humans living in the Olduvai Gorge. The taming of fire involved a lot of death and disaster. The larger sapien brain killed women in childbirth. All three, stone, fire, and brain, enabled great new weapons that humans used, among other things, to hurt and kill other humans. If the anti-sapiens had been able to talk about it, might things have gone differently? Today, since we have sapiens brains, the internet and also GPT, maybe we can actually bring more intentionality to these kinds of choices than Lucy and her anti-sapiens had available to them. And yet, despite evidence that for millions of years, the use and development of tools has amplified and accelerated the evolution of our cognitive and social abilities. We still tend to view technology as a dehumanizing force instead of the thing that makes us us. In higher education, we make the distinction between the arts and the sciences typically characterizing the former as the most essential form of human expression. The realm where we explore fundamental emotions like love, courage, anger, and mercy, but which arts aren't enabled, amplified, and extended by pencils. Printing presses, paint, pianos, microphones, computers, and other artifacts of technology. 
This dynamic doesn't just apply to the arts, but to any kind of communication, to the work that forms the basis of our careers, and to most other ways in which we find and create meaning. Whether in work, art, religion, or community, we have far more ways to find our purpose and create meaningful lives for ourselves than we did 600 years ago, or 300 years ago, or even 30 years ago, because we have far more tools with which to do so. With the rapid evolution of technologies like AI, robotics, and synthetic biology, people are worried that machines will displace human beings, and that as we try to adapt to the changes brought on by these technologies, key aspects of humanity and human agency will diminish or disappear altogether. Given that humanity's primary narrative has been one of continuous change and progress through technological innovation, however, the people of 2060 will arguably be more human than us, not less specifically because of the changes they've undergone. Of course, along with their different behaviors, they'll also be using their new technologies to express aspects of humanity that are very familiar to us. Electric guitars and vinyl records didn't invent love songs, they just made them more accessible and louder. So you're saying as humans evolve and incorporate new technologies into our lives, we're not becoming less human as some people might fear. Rather, we're actually becoming more human because we're adapting and evolving as a species, which is one of the defining characteristics of humanity. If anything, new technologies just give us new ways to express the emotions and experiences that have always been a part of our lives. What are the other defining characteristics of humanity, and how do those change over the course of history? Some other defining characteristics of humanity that come to mind include curiosity, creativity, and social interaction. Over the course of history, these characteristics have changed in various ways. For example, as humans have moved from small, isolated communities to larger, interconnected societies, we've had to adapt our social interactions accordingly. As for curiosity and creativity, they've continued to drive us to seek out new knowledge, invent new technologies, and explore new places. So even though the way we express these characteristics may change over time, they remain central to our identity as humans. More broadly, what patterns do you observe in how humans talk about becoming more or less human? There are many patterns that I observe in human communication about the notion of becoming more or less human. Here are a few. Some people fear the potential for technology to make humans less human. They worry that reliance on machines will lead to a loss of empathy, creativity, and other qualities that make us uniquely human. Others are excited about the prospect of enhancing human capabilities through technology. They envision a future in which humans merge with machines to become smarter, stronger, and healthier. A third group of people seem to be more ambivalent about the idea of technology altering humanity. They argue that humans have always evolved and adapted in response to new challenges, and that technology is just another step in that process. Finally, I observe some people who are skeptical of the entire conversation. They argue that the notion of becoming more or less human is a false dichotomy, and that the important question isn't whether technology will make us more or less human, but rather how it will change the ways in which we interact with one another and the world around us. Could all four of these perspectives be true? 
yes, I believe that they could all have some truth to them. Human beings are complex, and there is no single answer to the question of how technology will impact humanity. It seems likely that different people will experience and interpret the changes in different ways. Okay, so technology can be a tool to help us be more human, a threat to our humanity, or the core of who we already are. And this can change from situation to situation. Do you see patterns of how those three ideas of technology and humanity have been defined over time? Throughout history, people have often defined technology in relation to the idea of humanity. For example, in the early days of industrialization, many people were concerned about the impact of machines on human labor. They worried that automation would replace human workers, leading to mass unemployment. In this case, technology was seen as a potential threat to humanity. Later in the 20th century, as computers became more common, some people began to envision the potential for technology to augment human capabilities. They saw computers as tools that could make us smarter, faster, and more efficient. In this case, technology was seen as a way to make us more human. In the 21st century, as we move into the era of artificial intelligence and robotics, some people argue that technology is becoming an intrinsic part of who we are. They see technology as an extension of ourselves, rather than as a separate entity. In this case, technology is seen as inseparable from humanity. So, we've been at similar inflection points before regarding humans and their co-evolution with technology. Yes, as I mentioned earlier, humans have always evolved and adapted in response to new challenges. Technology has been a part of humanity's story for thousands of years, and it is likely that it will continue to be a defining feature of our future. The question is not whether technology will change humanity, but rather how it will change us. And if we are designing that change along with technology, as opposed to allowing technology to be something that happens to us, in short, all will not be lost, and much can be gained as long as we don't grow. So wary of change that we orient toward the future in a fundamentally defensive posture. Instead, we must actively cultivate change. That doesn't mean moving forward indiscriminately under the assumption that things will sort themselves out in time. New technologies can and always have amplified negative emotions and behaviors that are just as essentially human as more aspirational emotions and behavior like kindness, empathy, and reason. Imagine how deep fakes and simultaneous translation technologies might enable the scammers and political antagonists of the future. Yes, we must actively work to cultivate change. But we also need to remember that we're not done defining humanity yet. Homotechny might be the way forward. But we'll never know unless we keep moving and keep talking. Technologies are never neutral. We embed the tools and systems we create with specific values and specific intents and assume that they will produce specific outcomes. This doesn't necessarily limit their potential uses. A car can be a weapon, a life-saving device, a place to sleep, and many other things, but that doesn't make it neutral. Above everything else, a car is a technology that prioritizes effortless and extremely powerful mobility, and it ends up having much different impacts on the world 
than say a horse-drawn carriage or a bicycle. A core tenet for how I define techno-humanism involves striving for outcomes that broadly benefit humanity. Of course, that means being vigilant about the effects new technologies are likely to have. Rarely, however, are the narratives around technologies simple or clear-cut. In fact, that's why the technology's neutral assertion can be so pervasive. You can use nuclear fusion in ways that are highly beneficial and also in ways that are highly destructive. Same thing with painkillers and countless other technologies. That's precisely why it's so important to be acutely aware of the values, assumptions, and aspirations. We design into the technologies we build and why it's equally important to build appropriate regulatory frameworks to guide their usage. But if it's detrimental to society to claim that technology is neutral in order to evade responsibility for tech's potential negative outcomes, so is invalidating a technology simply because it has a, a capacity to produce negative outcomes along with positive ones. My point is not that we should be complacent about negative short-term consequences. We should be extremely committed to avoiding them and establish protocols and policies to ensure that we put this commitment into practice. But we also can't be complacent about the negative long-term consequences of not pursuing progress as boldly or systemically as we might through innovative new technologies. Preemptive bans against AI algorithms are a great way to lock in the status quo and all the inequities and injustices that inform the present, holding AI algorithms to 100% error-free standards that no current system achieves will only prevent us from making real progress as fast as we might. To successfully address global challenges like climate change, the depletion of natural resources and diminishing trust in public institutions, I believe big tech actually needs to get bigger without scale solutions. We have little chance of solving scale problems as quickly as we'll need to. So that means we should be looking for ways to accelerate technological innovation in energy production and transportation, in our civic, political, and financial infrastructure, in healthcare and education, in everything, really. Granted, I understand that my perspective may seem overly optimistic or even naive. If technology helped create many of the challenges we face, why should we expect that to change when the technologies in play are only getting more powerful? And yet, if we have abilities no other species can match, we also have obligations no other species must shoulder. The planet's well-being is in our hands. So what can we do to preserve, but just as importantly, expand the opportunities of those who will follow to my mind? This requires embracing our fundamentally innovative nature with the same bold spirit and ambition that Hugo Gernsback showed in 1923. It means looking for ways to productively harness nuclear fusion in our pursuit of net zero carbon energy production. It means genetically sequencing every existing species to assist conservation efforts and protect biodiversity. It means exploring new ways to scale trust in a world of global networks. But most of all, it means using AI to facilitate human collaboration in ways that were unimaginable even a decade ago. As we seek to create a new global order that is more equitable and sustainable, we need artificial intelligence to help us transcend our limitations, to help us understand each other, and to help us build new systems that are fairer, more efficient, and more responsive to our needs.
we're at a crossroads. We can either use AI to create a future in which we all thrive, or we can let it slide into a dystopian nightmare. I choose to believe in the former, and I hope you do, too. Of course, no perfect world awaits our successors, even if we do a good job of enabling the future, especially if we do a good job later human generations will have technologies and opportunities to define and express their humanity. And that means they'll continue to have competing interests, different values and aspirations, a wide range of lived experiences, and perhaps most of all, an abiding sense that things could and should be better. For homo techni, utopia is a direction, not a destination, a process, not an outcome.